Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Power Motor Yacht Podcast, your home for the best stories in boating. I'm your host, Editor-in-Chief Dan Harding. I say this often, but this time it's especially true. Today's episode's a special one. Today, I had a conversation with Michael Rybovich, a prolific third-generation boat builder. Michael's the patriarch of a family that invented the sport fisherman, and numerous sport fishing innovations still used today. So much has been written about the Rybovich family and their boats over the years, which made my recent trip to the Rybovich yard for a feature story that much more daunting. But still, as a writer, I love the challenge of profiling someone who's been written about before. Maybe it's a competition thing, or the challenge of finding a new angle, or the thrill of uncovering a gem of a story that others might have missed, but I had a feeling this would be a good one for the magazine, especially since Michael agreed to come on as one of our columnists over a year ago. Like many of you, I've been thoroughly enjoying his sometimes controversial, always honest columns in the magazine. Through his writing, I started to get the feeling that I actually knew him, and I think that's one of the skills that a great writer possesses. I hope that meeting in person wouldn't disappoint, and... Luckily for me, meeting Michael Rybovich reaffirmed what I thought I knew about him, that he's a hardworking, proud, old-school, handshakes-my-word kind of guy. And the stories he told, well, let's just say I didn't want this conversation to end. I hope you feel the same way when this episode concludes. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atlantis Marine Finance, a leader focused specifically in boats and yachts that's perfectly positioned to help you purchase the boat or yacht of your dreams. And this podcast is part of the AIM Marine Group Podcast Network, a series of podcasts that also includes the Angler's Journal podcast for those with a passion for fishing, and Troller Talk, a podcast from Passenger Maker Magazine that's tailored for those that don't mind taking things maybe just a little bit slower. If you're a boat or fishing nut and love good podcasts, I highly recommend giving those shows a listen. I personally never miss an episode of either. They're seriously engaging. All right, without further ado... I take you to Palm Beach, Florida, and the bright, old Florida-style sitting area of Michael Rybovich and Sons. Michael Rybovich, thank you for having us here today, sir. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for uh, allowing me to uh, spew a little bit of this history. Yes, that's, uh, that's, what, that's what we're here for. It looks like uh, yeah, a beautiful day. The yard is buzzing. You guys are keeping busy. We, are, we have been really blessed to see all of this business in such uh, an uncertain economic time, right? Uh, both in, in service and in new construction. How many new builds are going on right now? Do you have at least two? I saw. We have four, four under new construction. Builds. We have a, a, an 82, a 62, a 70, and a 42. Wow. Uh, so it's as busy, busy as uh, our little place has been in a long time. And on top of that, the service yard is full of work and uh, full of great stuff to do to help people. So we're, we're rolling along. Now, how many employees are running around here these days? We have somewhere on a daily basis between 40 and 50 people. Okay. That uh, changes due to variances in uh, the magnetic field of the earth uh-huh. and uh, <laughs> all kinds of other crazy things. Sure, sure. But, uh, but 40, 40 strong at least. Yes. I figure out of the start, we take things way, way back to your grandfather, John, and kind of the, the origin story of, of Rybovich, if you don't mind. Yeah, fine. Um, this is a story that is, is well known in the sport fishing circles, but... Uh, I'll try to condense it a bit. My grandfather came over here at the turn of the 20th century, right around 1900, and he was a carpenter from Austro-Hungary. Austro-Hungary, after World War I, became Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. 
And then when the Baltic states broke up uh, in the 80s and 90s, uh, it was no longer. Origins are actually around Croatia. Okay. But Pop, as he was known, came over here as a young man in 1900 and brought his carpenter skills with him and uh, went through Ellis Island and worked in New York, where everybody first ended up when they came over. And uh, after a while, he heard about uh, South Florida and what Flagler was doing down here and what a great place it was and how the weather was a whole lot better. So he came down here and he found work as a carpenter in Palm Beach, but then found out he couldn't work during the winter because uh, the Blue Bloods that uh, were down here enjoying paradise didn't want to hear any noise. Of course. So during the season, he had to find a another way to make a living. So he started, uh, got himself a small boat and started commercial fishing. And before long, other fishermen noticed how well he maintained his boat and what his skills were as a carpenter and began bringing him their vessels Mm -hmm. to be worked on. And soon enough, Pop found that uh, he could make a better living working on people's boats than he could fishing. So he hung up his nets and started uh, a little boatyard right down on 40th Street in West Palm Beach. Uh, he and my grandmother bought a piece of property there and built a small boatyard, which over the years uh, became more and more busy. Mm-hmm. And as his reputation grew, so did the business. Along came over the course of Uh, about 10 years, along came five children. And among them were three boys who uh, worked in the yard. Uh, Actually, uh, my aunts, uh, Aunt Ethel and Aunt Mary, also worked in the yard. Uh, The European model at the time was uh, kids were free labor, (laughs) and they were a damn good deal. They they started young, right? They started young. As soon as they could pick up something heavy. Yeah. They were all working in the yard. Anyway, uh, as uh, the business grew, the boys took a more and more active role in the operation of the yard. And uh, my uncle John, John Jr., became more and more interested in offshore fishing. And with his interest came ideas that turned into innovations. And... The Rybovich Yard became known for the place to go if you were going to come down here and go sport fishing with your boat. In the early days, we weren't building anything. We were converting a lot of cruisers to sport fishing applications, uh, like mounting outriggers and fighting chairs and placing controls up on top of the deckhouse, which eventually became enclosed flying bridges, uh, all kinds of innovative sport fishing tackle and accessories came out of that yard. So with that reputation, the business continued to grow until World War II came along. And uh, when the war happened, all three of Pop's boys enlisted in the Army. Johnny went to a quartermaster position in uh, purchasing an acquisition for the Army Uh, My uncle Tommy became a B-17 bomber pilot and flew in the European theater. 
and actually uh, was awarded the distinguished, award, distinguished Flying Cross, yes, uh, for uh, bravery. And my father uh, joined the Army's air-sea rescue uh, boating, and he was stationed in Seattle, uh, Pacific Northwest, for most of the war. Okay. When the boys came home, they were full of all kinds of ideas. They'd had plenty of time to think and plenty of time to be exposed to the military way of doing things and, and new innovative uh, materials that were available through their military service. Um, so they came back uh, ready to set the world on fire, and a customer came in uh, and said, I want you to build me a boat, and these are the dimensions I want it, and I'm going to leave everything else up to you. And that guy's name was Charlie Johnson, and uh, that became hull number one in 1947, two years after the war ended. And this was the famous Miss Chevy 2? This was, was Miss Chevy 2. Okay. That's right, Dan. And uh, wherever she went, the eyes were upon her. Mm. And uh, the phone started ringing not just for service at the boatyard, but can you build me a, a boat like that one? Yeah. And the new construction end of things took off. And my Uncle Tommy became the designer builder. And he was responsible for what became the Rybovich look. Right. And Rybovich was known for, and we like to think that is still known for, a yacht-quality fishing boat mm. that was high performance. This is what people were after. Nobody else was doing that. So they kind of created Carved the niche. a niche yeah. and then really, really worked it well before there was such a thing as a yacht-quality, high-performance sport fishing boat. Yeah. Um, not to say that other people weren't sport fishing, because they damn sure will were back then. But we were the ones to take that to the next level. Very soon after uh, our boats caught on, others followed. Mm -hmm. And to this day, the... Um, Custom sport fishing industry mm -hmm. is known for its super high quality mm -hmm. and high performance in boating. Yeah. Um, what the custom sport fishermen do is far more advanced as far as performance goes than the cruising market. So all of this came about from uh, an Austro-Hungarian immigrant yeah. and his sons and I have to give credit to his daughters as well, because while the boys were off at war, his daughters ran that company. Right. And, and made sure it was there for them when they got home. One of the things about your, your grandfather that I noted, it's like, he, you said he used his carpentry skills. He came over at 16 and he had carpentry skills. I mean, that's, if that doesn't speak to what a different world. Different world. Um, of course, that he came over with a trade. At in this country, right. In this country, Dan, it's hard for you and me. <laughs> when we think about having skills at, at a high school age, mm -hmm. right? But in the European way of life, right. you went into an apprenticeship and you learned a trade. How old would that have been? Like 10? I think as soon as you could uh, pick up and use the, the tools. Wow. And 
to this day, the European model is far better than the American model when it comes to how we raise our children and steer them towards a goal of a method of making a living. Um, and we have lost that in this country. And, of course, there are many people who are trying to change that and, and get us back to that, uh, Mike Rowe being one of them, uh, the guy that does Dirty yeah, Jobs yeah. and Deadliest Catch. Yep. He's an amazing proponent of the trades and training people in the trades. I think there's hope for it, but there's been such, this, such a big void in this area that it's going to take us a while to kind of steer the ship back towards the trades. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he came over as a very young man. Yeah. Uh, by the way, he was single at the time, and went back to New York. I know. I, lo I love. I love that part of the story. So he went back. He, this guy has a mission, right? So he, he had he, a mission. He went to New York to get. A, he's like, I don't, I don't want. A, I don't want a wife from down here. I'm going to go to New York and get one. He went to New and York to get one <laughs> that he could first off communicate with. Right. Uh, right. He needed someone who was from where he was. Yeah. And my grandmother had come over from Czechoslovakia. Yeah. And both of them being of Slovak heritage uh, could communicate. And yeah. luckily they hit it off. And luckily <laughs> they stayed together forever and, and raised these, this family that, that created this whole thing. That's amazing. What memories do you have of, uh, of your grandfather? Um, I have some... Humorous memories, mostly. Okay. Uh, my grandfather was all business. Mm -hmm. And even after the yard was signed over to his sons, he was still down there playing an active role mm -hmm. in his day-to-day -day, uh, rambling through the yard and making sure everybody was doing what he thought they should be doing, which sometimes conflicted with what <laughs> his boys thought you, they should you be don't doing. Say. But he uh, stayed on, and as the uh, lumber guy, he would go off all over the country and purchase lumber for the yard until he could no longer do it because of wow. his age and his health. But um, it was all about hard work mm -hmm. and family. However, he had no use for kids unless they were on the payroll. <laughs> and so when we were little kids and we were down there with Dad... We were not on the payroll, so uh -huh. as far as he was concerned, we were in the way, uh, which uh, <laughs> created a lot of interesting weekend uh, uh -huh. excursions to the boatyard, but we learned to have fun with it, Okay, and like all kids do, learned how to mess with him, um, but he was, he was a really, really great guy, and as we got older, we understood more about the work ethic and the idea that if you're not there producing, you don't belong there. As we got older, that was a whole lot easier to understand for us. When we were kids, it was uh, just fun and games. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my grandmother, on the other hand, uh, couldn't get enough of her grandchildren. And so we spent a lot of time with Grandma up at the house. The house was at the boatyard because okay. actually they had homesteaded that property and then built a small yard and watched it grow. But their That's home amazing. was on the property. We would run up and spend time with Grandma, who was uh, just the most loving person I have ever known. 
Wow. And really enjoyed spending time with her grandchildren yeah. and would spoil us with um, with uh, cookies and Coke and <laughs> sliced mangoes and hugs. That's That sounds like a grandma. Yeah. That's amazing. You know, um, so then shifting back to that, to that next generation, you know, I think their, their World War II service is, is certainly well known, but, and you touched on it slightly, but what other influences do you think the military service, I wouldn't mind talking about that a little bit more, how, how their service in, uh, in World War II came back and impacted the business. Cause then it was also interesting that they all kind of came back and fell into kind of unique, but also complementary roles. Like, was that by design? Was that a little bit by accident? Um, I think it fit with the European model of su- successorship, okay. which is the oldest son is the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter what qualifications you have, yeah. the first prerequisite is who came first. And so Johnny, being the oldest son and the first, um, fell into the role of the business end of things. However, on top of uh, the the, uh, European family model, what the uh, three boys gained in experience in the military also contributed to their individual roles in the boatyard. No one had any problem with Johnny being in charge. Mm-hmm. I guess that was to be expected, like you said. He also had acquired um, a lot of knowledge about the latest and greatest materials. So when he came back, he knew where he wanted to go, not only in boat building but in service, mm-hmm. to be the cutting edge of the sport fishing industry with, with new materials. Okay. Uh, my Uncle Tommy, who had been the bomber pilot, and of the three, always the most artistic, even when growing up, had acquired, I think, even more of an interest in a clean line because of the aerodynamics involved in his military career. My father probably gained a whole lot more mechanical knowledge and systems knowledge by being in air-sea rescue boats in the military, in the right. Army Army Air Corps. So, um, yeah, I guess it was part of the Army Air Corps, the rescue boats, because they were out there to pick up the pilots that were shot down. Um, so all of that uh, kind of uniquely fit yeah. when they came back. And, you know, it, it could be all just a matter of chaos theory, but it just worked out. Yeah. So as they fell into their new roles as boatyard owners and operators. They each had their own talents and acquired knowledge. And and that's how it continued until uh, the boatyard was sold eventually in the 70s. Do you think, was it was it a hard transition for them to come back to the yard or was that something like that they'd been dreaming about and, and they, they just couldn't wait to come back and work? Because I got to imagine you get these, you know, three brothers, you know, Family working together has got its own challenges, but then you're all coming back from your different deployments, your different, you know, different areas to, to come back together like that and just start working together in lockstep. It just feels like there would be so many challenges, but maybe they embraced it. I think initially it was very easy okay. for them to do that. We have to go back and look at, it, once again, the European family model yeah. and the way they were raised. It okay. was all about family. 
Yeah. And I don't think any of them had any reservations about getting back to family and what they had grown up with. And, of course, they had the, the unique opportunity to grow up in South Florida when, before it became the metropolis right. that it is now. And who would not want to get back to that paradise? So initially it was very easy. After success came to them, uh, there was certainly a friction that you would expect in any partnership, especially in family. Yeah. But they overcame that. Uh, there were some very famous battles, but um, it never stopped them from pursuing the main goal, which was to be the best, mm. to be on the cutting edge and to be the best. That, that makes a lot of sense. So now, now going ahead, I mean, obviously, I think, you know, Miss Chevy 2 is well known because of all of its, you know, it was the first, right? All of its incorporations of, of the sport fishing innovation. I think one of the boats, you know, that gets overlooked and correct me on how to pronounce this, but the second boat that was built, Clary Joe, or how, mm-hmm. is, that, is that how you pronounce it? That, that boat seems almost more interesting in some ways because it, but if well, it followed up and that boat had a, we'll call it an, an infamous owner. Is there, are there any memories or stories from that project? It had a very infamous <laughs> owner who anytime he had anything to do with the yard was a perfect gentleman. And that is Tony Accardo. Tony was a fisherman and he yeah. loved to tuna fish. And this was back in the heyday of tuna fishing mm-hmm. in the Bahamas when the schools would run through there every year and there'd be massive schools and you thought there would never be an end to those schools of fish. But Tony was a big tuna fisherman. And a matter of fact, his nickname was big tuna, (laughs) but his day job was to protect his boss at all cost. Who was a a little known guy named Al Capone. (laughs) That's that's what I was going to (laughs) say. So Tony worked for Al Capone. So when Tony came into the yard and told Johnny he wanted a boat like that Miss Chevy, but he wanted his to be a little bit bigger. (laughs) Of course. So Miss Chevy was built as 34, and Clara Jo was built as 37. (laughs) And actually, Clara Jo was a prettier boat because she was stretched out another another four feet, made a big difference in the profile of the boat in the overall look of it but anyway he uh was a gentleman as i said mm-hmm. as far as my family has told me i wasn't uh <laughs> on the planet when he was a fixture at the yard yeah but he paid his bills on time and sure. he paid in cash oh my god <laughs> <laughs> oh i mean i don't know any other stories of like was there a level of, I mean, you're just dealing with a, a, such a unique individual, but there was no, like you said, he was a gentleman. There was no fear, no, uh, so, hey, we guys, we got to get this one right. Let's. <laughs> I'm not sure that no one had any fear of screwing up. Yeah. Um, but if they did, they didn't talk about it. Fair. Uh, it, the, the stories I get is that it was a very good relationship. Okay. And uh, he was a perfect gentleman. Would you say otherwise? I mean, that's not. Oh, I, I would. I mean, you, you would, but I know. Yeah, because know. It, because all of that, you know, that's those guys are all enough. gone, and and I mean, <laughs> on my side and their side, yeah. so yeah, no one would care, right? But uh, truthfully, yeah. that's uh, that's 
what I had always been told. Okay. That's, that's interesting. And then, um, one of the other pieces of, of Rybovich lore is that none other than Jack Hargrave worked at the yard for a few years. That is correct. Yes. Jack, um, and kind of got his story. He was just out of, was, was it West Lawn or uh, no, Webb? Well, no, it was West Lawn. No, West Lawn and is, uh, Jack, um, actually, to be fair, didn't get his start in boat building and design at the yard. Okay. He actually had his own company in West Palm Beach building some small boats. But like so many startups, it wasn't really going anywhere. So Jack decided to concentrate on his design uh, qualifications and talents. And uh, Uncle Johnny got wind of it, and they met. And uh, Jack had been intrigued with what Rybovich was doing with no formal naval architect on the staff. Uh, my Uncle Tommy was just an, an extremely gifted artist. And, of course, his early designs were based on existing designs to which he put his own flair. Right. Jack came aboard as our designer, as our naval architect, and worked exclusively with Tommy. And it was a challenged relationship because Jack uh, had a formal education, in the design process and had a hard time understanding how someone could just go out to the shop floor and set a beautiful boat up and build it. Yeah. So it was left to Jack to essentially record this process rather than influence it. It still was a great relationship and Jack stayed on through uh, the 1959 double cabin, which was Rhino. After that, Jack had been lured away by none other than C.F. Johnson, who had built three boats at the time at Rybovich and was uh, involved in a project at Daytona Boat Works up the road here at Peace. Okay. And so Jack went to work for uh, C.F. Johnson and de designed those uh, beautiful Daytona boats that had the straight shear and beautiful curvy uh, deck houses and uh, did very well with that. In the meantime, Jack had designed a burger called the Seven Seas for C.F. Johnson, which really put his name on the map in motor yacht design, which is what his forte became right. and what he is well known for. Jack became the premier American motor yacht designer. And uh, we still worked with Jack back and forth a little bit over the years until Johnny hired another naval architect named Giovanni Cardelli, who worked extremely well with Tommy, who understood wow. the process. And those two worked very well together and really came up with some incredible stuff over the years. Maybe uh, you tell us a little bit about, about your boat building journey. How did you go from a kid who's eating uh, cookies and cola at, at grandma's <laughs> and, and when did your We'll call it, I would say, apprenticeship or indoctrination. You know, how did that, how did that start? I kind of backed into it <laughs> the way my grandfather did. In my entire youth, I was told by my mother and father that I was to go off to college. Mm -hmm. And when I got out of college, I was to earn a good living so that I could take care of them when they got old. 
once again, the European model. It was never brought up at any family conversation that I would go to work at the boatyard. I was down there, spent my childhood down there yeah. with my brothers growing up around the docks, around the craftsmen down there, picking up little things here and there, but mostly just hanging out and having a good time running through my dad's boatyard. When I got out of high school, I went off to college for a couple years and came back. Disillusioned is probably... Uh, it's fair, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> kind of easy word to, yeah. <laughs> for me to use, but came back from college and uh, was quickly running out of money. And I went to my dad one day and I said, uh, Dad, do you think I could go to work at the boatyard? And he looked at me in disbelief because he never, ever thought that that would happen. And I was 19 years old. Wow. And he looked at me in disbelief, and then he said, you know, Michael, I always wished you would. Wow. He said, you go home, you get a haircut, <laughs> and you come on in tomorrow morning, and we'll get you set up. So that's how I got into it. Just it like that. It was never anything that was understood. I never had it planned out in front of me. As a matter of fact, I was always steered away from it. That's amazing. I would have, I would have expected the opposite. I would have expected you as, yeah. as a boatyard brat, you would have been working like your dad as a young kid, 10, 11, you know, painting. And, you would think that. Yeah. And, and, of course, we grew up in and around boats. We were out in boats every spare minute when yeah. we weren't in school, fishing, skiing, mm -hmm. cruising around having fun doing things we shouldn't be doing. Uh, but we were, it was always about boating. Yeah. But it was never about the boatyard. And it's so interesting. It, that was kind of, and that was intentional from the get-go that they, they. I think this is something that my parents and I, uh, my parents agreed upon uh, early in my childhood. I'm, if I had to guess, I would think it was my mother pushing that more than my father. But uh, anyway, they agreed upon it, and yeah. uh, they essentially kept their mouths shut. Wow. All right, so what, what, was your, what did your hair look like at 19 before you, you, <laughs> your dad made a cut? Where, where do we see that well, photo? Uh, it looked as you would expect it to look. Um, I played in a lot of local rock bands and uh, had a great time doing that. And yeah. still my second love in life music behind boating and, and boat building is music. And, wow. and I, I have a, what I think is a pretty fair appreciation for it. And uh, it's, it's a big part of my day. Okay. So Take us by, so you, you, you get started at the yard. What was your, what were your early experiences, you know, kind of as, as an employee, like what were you at that point? It's like, okay, you're going to be grooming, be groomed to kind of be running this or were you more focused, I believe in, in carpentry? Well, thank goodness. Uh, my father had the good parental sense to say to me, if you're going to work here, you're going to start at the bottom because you're going to have to learn it all. And so I went to work on the haul-out crew. 
And I worked for a guy that I had known all my life since I was born. He started working for my grandfather in 1941, and he was in charge of the haul-out crew still when I went to work there. So I went to work for Marshall Ray on the bottom gang and uh, learned about hauling boats and pulling propellers and shafts and painting bottoms and fixing worm shoes and uh, all of the, the, the basic essentials that first occur when you pull a boat out of the water. Yeah. And then um, after a few years of that, my father seemed perfectly content to leave me on the bottom gang. <laughs> but uh, my uncle, Hal, who was married to my Aunt Mary, thought better of that and said, this kid needs to now learn the boat building end of things. And with that, he'll learn the carpentry end of things. So they okay. moved me over into new construction where I was the, uh, the glue mixer and the board holder and the uh, informal apprentice. Okay. There. And so I got my, I cut my teeth over there. And then uh, after a few years of that, um, our carpenter foreman, Jack Rhodes, was retiring. And my uncle decided that uh, who better to put in that position but this kid. And it uh, created some interesting um, relationships with the older employees. How old were you about at the time? I was 25. 25. When I was pushed into the carpentry foreman position with the full support of the retiring mm -hmm. foreman, Jack Rhodes. But uh, he didn't hang around too long. Right, right. And uh, it was, when I look back on it, it was humorous. It's humorous. Um, when I was in the midst of it, it was a real challenge for a kid to be supervising and organizing a crew of extremely talented journeymen, craftsmen, um, naturally, there was resentment uh, because of the nepotism element. And not only nepotism, but just who is this punk kid? Uh, what the hell does he know? I would have felt the same way. Yeah. So the only thing I could do was work my ass off to gain their respect. And that's what I did. And eventually, those guys came around to it. And I got the respect that uh, maybe somebody else would have gotten sooner. Hmm. Um, but it, it was a really good way to learn. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure it's the most convenient way to learn. Sure. But it was a good way to learn, to be thrown in the middle of it and have to deal with it. With, yeah, with any hmm. lessons from that period that you, know, you, you carry with you today? Uh, yeah, Um I got two boys here that are working with me, uh, Dusty and Alex, and uh, I can relay that to them, mm -hmm. that when you're working with uh, skilled people who've been doing something all their life, yeah. you're not going to uh, gain their respect simply, simply by being who you are. That's yeah. not going to happen, and it shouldn't happen. You, you're going to have to prove yourself. Right. So. I think that comes in handy as, as I slowly pass this torch. Okay. I mean, that's a great point, especially that must be such a challenge where you, you grew up in the yard. The, 
I'm sure some of these guys literally remember you and you're. They all knew me. Just running around. This kid, <laughs> this kid was eating, you know, cookies and cola, and now, now he's my boss. I've been doing this for decades. That's exactly right. They knew me as my <laughs> father's son. Yeah. They had no interest in me telling them what to do, <laughs> and who can blame them? Yeah, I wouldn't either. No, I. That's yeah. That's such an interesting point. So you say. You say you worked your ass off, and certainly I, I believe it, but what were what were those days like when, when you took over as the foreman? I mean, was it, was it five, six days a week? Was it like it was six days unbelievable a week. hours, or was it kind of a... It was six days a week. Then as now, the yard was open Saturday, and there was at least a third of the crew in there on Saturdays because the nature of custom work is that it's one off. Everything you do is a prototype. Yeah. And the idea that you're going to conform to some sort of predetermined deadline, the only way you're going to get there is to work long hours because you're always going to be under the gun, mm -hmm. especially if you're working in a place that is slammed with work because of the great reputation that it has. So, uh, once I was in charge of the carpenter shop, my going home at 4.30, five days a week, was gone. So now I was opening in the morning yeah. and going home in the evening late and working all day Saturday and sometimes Sunday morning. Wow. But it is a schedule that I still am uh, part of today. It's still part of me today. Uh, I What... I gained was a work ethic that I never thought I had. I guess I got, as they say, in touch with something that I didn't know I had. Right. And uh, I've been adhering to that schedule since I was in my mid-20s and uh, wouldn't want to do it any other way. I, I, I really feel like if, if you're not producing the good Lord's going to be kind of upset with you because he put you on this earth to accomplish something. Wow. So uh, you don't have much of a golf game, I can imagine. That's, uh, <laughs> don't know anything about the game. Know nothing about it. I However, I have a lot of friends that play it and are completely <laughs> consumed with it. Yeah. I'm that's... just consumed with my job. That's all. Did you have time for fishing? Is that what, is that a bug that, that you... You caught, I mean, you said you grew up fishing and things like that, but uh, would you say that you you have the boat building bug and then, and not the sport fishing, or do you have a little bit of both? I had more time for fishing <laughs> before Buildings. my work schedule changed. <laughs> yeah. Once it changed, uh, I didn't have the free time that I used to have. Now, I'm not complaining, but uh, when we were kids, we were fishing every day. Okay. When work took the first fiddle chair in my life. <laughs> um, I didn't have much free time. I managed to find enough time to get my pilot's license and fool around with that for a while. But even that had to go by the wayside after a while. So for a long time, I didn't get much fishing in. And then uh, in later years, uh, when I got into my mid-40s, I kind of started getting chances again through uh, friends and customers that yeah. we had dealt with over the years to go fishing again. Mm. And uh, it's something that I still love. And 
am getting more opportunities now. Yeah. Probably because people are taking pity on the old man. <laughs> they want you out of the shop for a little while. <laughs> exactly. Like, Why don't you go fishing. This is a, this is a tournament. You're but love uh, it. I, I've always enjoyed it. It's just through my most productive years, I didn't do too much of it. Okay. Fair. Fair enough. So I wanted, I wanted to shift uh, slightly to talk a little bit about your the the boat building process, and you know, you guys are famous for the for the cold molded hulls and um, just wanted to give you a, a, a chance to, to talk about that. I mean, you must have felt pressure to maybe switch over to fiberglass at any point, or or you always you know steadfast in the benefits that come with. Yes, several times uh, over the years, we toyed with the idea of building a plug and having a set of molds made. The problem that always occurred was that in our way of boat building, in our, our family way of boat building, every time we set a boat up, the aim is to make it better than the one you just finished. Every time we finish a boat, we look at it and go, man, that is incredible, but it's not perfect. The next, next one's going to be perfect. So with subtle changes, and sometimes not so subtle changes, um, we're constantly trying to build the perfect boat. And we never felt that we had the perfect boat from which we could take a mold. Because we always were worried that we're going to spend all this time and money yeah. and start building boats that are exactly the same over and over again, and they're not perfect. Mm -hmm. We're going to make the next one perfect. So maybe right. we'll get a mold we'll off of that, that one. one. And it just never happened. Okay. It never happened. And it's probably unfortunate um, looking back that we didn't at least try some of that. Hmm. But it just never happened because we were always in pursuit of excellence and thought that um, we hadn't got there yet we were eventually going to get there yeah well this, i'm going to play dumb with this question but you know maybe you could just touch on for for our millions of listeners the you know some of the benefits of you know besides the customs the custom length and things like that the other benefits to cold molded construction well yeah the obviously you can build total custom when you're building a cold molded boat because you're not limited by any parameters at all. You're starting with a blank sheet of paper, or in this case, uh, with my son Dusty now, with a blank screen. Right. And you can do anything you want, as in length, beam, uh, shape, uh, volume, general arrangement plan, power. You can do anything you want because you're starting fresh every time. That's a huge advantage when you promote your business as total custom. Right. There are many other advantages. Um, one being there is a feel to a cold molded wooden boat that you don't get in a plastic resin boat. Um, I'm not condemning plastic resin boats mm -hmm. because in the first place, if you're going to go into production, you can't sit around building wooden boats. It's not going to work. 
Yeah. You have to go into fiberglass boats. But anybody that spent enough time out there on boats, and especially in sport fishing boats, because in our niche, the boats take a beating a whole lot more than in cruising. And the boats have to be able to take that beating. They have to be able to go to sea. And you're going fishing whether it's rough or calm or somewhere in between. And there is a feel to a coal-molded wooden boat in the sea that you don't get in riding around in a plastic boat. And it's very hard to describe that. You have to kind of be out there and do a lot of it and know the difference. And you'll definitely know the difference. Interesting. But one of the simple things that we can say is that the coal-molded wooden boat is a quieter, smoother boat because the nature of wood is a cellular structure, cellular organic structure that absorbs vibration. You don't get that with plastic. Right. Plastic is a hard, unforgiving material. It's a great material. It's a great material to build boats out of. But it doesn't forgive in the acoustic properties and the vibration properties like a wooden boat. And, boy, you can really tell the difference there when right. you jump on one of ours and you jump on a production boat. Right. Um, again, I'm not condemning the production boys because they do a hell of a job. But they're not, they can't make any money building a one-off right. wooden boat. And isn't there some uh, misunderstandings around the, the weight of a cold molded boat? I think, you know, I think when people think you know, multiple layers of, of wood on top of each other, they think this, this must be exponentially heavier. But that's, that's rarely the case, right? Yeah, I won't say exponentially, but we are far lighter. Okay. And we can build a lighter boat in coal molding versus uh, what they do inside a mold with a fiberglass boat. We can build, it's probably truthfully somewhere about 20, 25% lighter. And because we can do that and still maintain the strength we need to go out there and beat these things up, we can burn less fuel and go faster. And Speed was always a big component. Um, speed was always why customers came to us in the early days. Because my family could brag about 20-knot boats, you know. And then Amazing. soon it became 30-knot boats. And then it became 40. And now all of us in this niche, all of my crew and all of my fellow boat builders are trying to get break through that 50-knot barrier. And you have to keep things light yeah. if you're going to do that. The engine manufacturers are giving us the horsepower to do it. It's out there. Yeah, We can buy that horsepower. But we have to keep the weight out of the boats, and at the same time, they've got to stay together. So that's the challenge. Yeah is getting them light enough to break that new barrier that right. we're up against and keeping the boats together. That's a great point. I think one other misconception that that's worth addressing is when people think Rybovich, they think of your heritage and they hear cold molded that, you know, you guys are 
You guys are classic boat builders, and that and that feels like a an unfair mischaracterization, especially as you look at uh, God. Was it a '94? What's the, the Three Amigos boat look like? Just, it, I mean, looked unbelievable, and and had has state of the art materials all throughout it. Um, is that something you guys come up against, or people? Yes, it is. It's it's very common, and <laughs> I will say it is a convenient marketing approach for our competition. Um, that these guys are old fashioned, meaning us. Yeah, yeah. That these guys are classic. They deserve all the credit uh, that has been given them over over the years, but they're not the new stuff. And that is just not true. It's not true, and especially when it comes to performance. I'm not laying the gauntlet down here. I'm not issuing a challenge. But I can tell you that our new boats will run with anybody's new boats. And I won't go any further than that. Well, that sounds like a challenge. That sounds like a challenge to me, the... uh but no, I think that's I think that's a really cool point. So not only that, uh, the the styling um, now is far more important than it ever was, and I think it's I think it's probably be, because of the new money. Yeah. And and the new money comes from people who have uh, grown up with um, pizzazz and instant gratification. And they want, they want a certain kind of styling. And, and not realizing it, they all become the same. They're all after the same thing, which no longer makes them unique. But they don't realize that. So we're, we've been accused of, of being behind the curve on the new styling. And I think if you look at our newer boats... That argument does not hold up at all. Yeah. We're putting the stuff in there that people are asking about. And along with that, we're still building a super high-quality, high-performance boat. So I'm very, very excited about the new stuff that we're doing. And I, and I think that um, I have to credit our customers mm-hmm. for a lot of that, for demanding that that we uh, kind of bring ourselves into the new styling. Okay. It has absolutely nothing to do with seaworthiness or performance, but the new money demands it. Okay. And uh, if we're going to stay in this, we got to fool around in that, in that uh, genre. Well, this is a perfect segue to really one of my, one of my last questions is, you know, what, what does the, what does the future of, you know, Michael Rivers and Sons, you know, what do you, yeah, what does the future look like? It's amazing to see how far you guys, you guys have come, but you know, what do you crystal ball, you know, 10, 10 years from now, how are the boats different and, and how are they the same? Well, I think uh, what they'll all have in common is an uncompromising high quality mm-hmm. to them. Um, we are fastidious to a fault when it comes to how things are put together mm-hmm. and the joinery and the paintwork and the bright work, uh, we still have a yearn to be the best. 
And boy, oh boy, it's getting harder and harder to maintain your position at the top of the heap. And if I was fair, I would say there are probably five or six of us that are sitting at the top of the heap now, not just Rybovich. Um, people have learned from us that the ultimate boat has to have the ultimate quality as an ingredient. So there are a lot of people building a damn nice boat right now. Sure. We still think ours are the best. I'm sure if you asked uh, my competition, they'd feel the same way about theirs, sure. which is the only smart way to feel about your product. Yeah. But uh, I think uh, in the future we're going to do everything we can to maintain that and put ourselves above the rest. I think we're going to continue to innovate uh, not just in – hull shapes that give us the performance and seaworthiness that we've attained now. But that, uh, with the help of my sons, um, we're going to be more innovative in uh, the systems okay. and the equipment that come aboard, which is so important. Boating, like everything in our, else in our lives, has become so reliant on technology and so complicated that on any given day, something isn't work, working. There is a fault code on something. Mm -hmm. And we're going to do our best to simplify that. I'm not saying that we're not going to use the latest and greatest technology, but we want to work with technology to keep things simple mm -hmm. so you get more days fishing, and fewer days in the boatyard. If uh, and I'm sure you're, you, you're constantly passing down, you know, advice and, and wisdom to now this this fourth generation, like you said, to your sons working here. But if if you can give them, if you had one overarching piece of advice for for the, for that for the fourth generation coming up, what would it be? It takes hard work. That seems to be a through line from from your grandfather all the way through. Yes, in, in, in the case of my family, it certainly is. But I think if you talk to anybody who owns and operates their own business, they're going to tell you the same thing. And, man, every time I turn around, there are people in this country worried about trying to get more time off. And you're not going to slay the dragon with more time off. <laughs> that's a, that's a, a fair point. And I think uh, a theme for... You know, that's hinted at a few in your columns, and that's that's what I wanted to uh, kind of shift to towards the end here is your uh, your your stem to stern column. And uh, first of all, just, you know, honored to have it within the book. Kind of interesting how it came up, and I'm interested to hear how, how you started writing it because stem to stern was something you started in your in your newsletter, and I find it extremely unfair that you're a great boat builder and you're also a great writer. <laughs> that's, that, that's just crap. You know, we I can't build a boat, so you're – that you in your free time are really edging into my turf, but how <laughs> did, where did your writing? You must have been writing all along. Or first off, let me say that I'm not a great writer. It takes mm. me a long time okay. to put that together each month. I feel like if I was a great writer, great writers aren't fast. This though. great stuff would just roll off my tongue <laughs> with no editing required. And it takes me a long time to put that together. And, and then 
when I think I have it just right, mm-hmm. which is usually the day before. <laughs> day before it's set to go. Uh, Estelle says to me, hey, Walmart we got to get the right newsletter now. out. Then we go and Estelle and I go through it and check yeah. it further for grammar. Okay. Um, but I always thought that the great writers could just, it just oozed out of them. And, and that's not the case. I yeah. have fun yeah. with it and I enjoy I it. I can tell. Um, but how I got started in it, uh, my son Blake was here as our purchasing agent for right. a while. And um, he absolutely full of great ideas. And he said to me, first off, it was his idea that we start the newsletter. That's a great idea. And then he said to me one day, you know, I think it'd be a good idea if you would write kind of a forward to the newsletter every month. Um, people would appreciate it, hearing something from the top. And I balked at first <laughs> and uh, thought of a million reasons why I shouldn't do that. But I think he was right. I think... Uh, We've seen that people enjoy that, and I think Blake was absolutely right. But started off with just a couple sentences about what was going on, and then I started having fun with it. Mm-hmm. And, of course, like anything in life, when you have fun with it, you tend to spend a little more time on it. Yeah. And uh, before I knew it, uh, people were commenting, and, of course, now you're having fun with something, and you get people <laughs> cheering you on. <laughs> so all of this comes together, uh-huh. and then you get to the point you go, "Oh my God, what have I done?" Now you're now I've got to come now, up yeah. with this stuff every month. Mm-hmm. And what happens if I get writer's block? I hear about this all the time. <laughs> what am I going to do? Yeah. So now it's become a liability. <laughs> I do thoroughly enjoy it, and Good. I'm glad other people enjoy it. I do my best to make it enjoyable. I, I, I bounce around on current events. Yeah. Some of the things I say um, in, in today's political climate are questionable. And I, yeah. and I know that there are three sides to everything. But I can tell you it's all from the heart. Yeah. I think that's fair. I think that's what makes yours so real is that it's completely honest. And I've always found that the, the pieces of writing that resonate the most, it's honest. That's, that's the number one Characteristic, and, and certainly yours has that in spades. Uh, to a fault, maybe. But yeah. Your words, not your words, not mine. But uh, <laughs> what, a quick shout out to you know one of our uh, one of our readers, Matt Howard, who's a broker with United Yacht Sales. He sent me one of your first, I think your first longer form ones, and he just emailed it over to me and said, "I was like, Dan, you're gonna you're gonna get a kick out of this. This, you know, not only can this guy build a boat, but he could freaking write." And uh, and he was right. I was really I was thankful to him for sending it on and. I'm really thankful uh, to you for allowing us to then take that and and publish it in the magazine. It's been uh, it's been an unbelievable addition. I'm I'm very proud that, that that you guys feel like you want to include that. Honestly, there are, there are great writers who over the years have kept our interest in editorials in any kind of magazine or or print form. But Tom Fexis was one of my favorites. Yeah. And, I can see his influences. And although I never really got a lot of pleasure out of his naval architecture, <laughs> I respected him as a boat designer. Yeah. But I thought he was the greatest with his column. I, and, and I thought, you know, once 
I started having a little fun with this, I thought a lot about Tom Fexis and thought maybe subconsciously I got steered there from reading his column over the years. I totally see it. It's, you know, he had a way of being self-deprecating, which I really like. I, I try to, I, I feel like I was influenced by that. But yeah, just the overarching feeling of not taking yourself, taking your writing seriously, but not taking yourself too seriously, I think is, uh, just makes you, it so you, relatable. You know, if, if more people <laughs> learn to not take themselves <laughs> too seriously, we wouldn't have the problems we have in this country. It's That's incredible. Fair how serious people are about life. It's just too short. Mm. Well said. I mean, so one last thing with your, with your column, is there, is there anything that you want, you know, readers and listeners to know about your column or, or to, to know about you? Cause now that, now that they've seen so much into your, into your mind a little bit, I, I disclaimers think, or, <laughs> well, yeah, the only disclaimer I would, I might have is that what well, we talked about, it comes from the heart. And it also comes from a day-to-day experience in yep. the boatyard. And a boatyard is not only about boats. It's a microcosm of our culture. Right. So whatever's going on in the country or the world is going on in the boatyard. Mm. And that's where this stuff comes from, really. What do you, what do you see the, the future of your column? I mean, did Again, it sounds like you're having a lot of fun. You think kind of continuing in that vein? Because, I mean, I love the mix that sometimes it's, uh, you know, look back at, you know, when you were growing up and, you know, your, and your parents' generation, and then it's, you know, uh, the kind of music you're hearing in the different shops. I mean, I, I love the variety, but did you have any vision or, or motives in the future or kind of? I have no idea where it's going to go. Excellent. That's what I was hoping. I really don't. I I, I feel like... It makes me nervous, but excited. (laughs) I don't know where it's going. Um, Things pop into my head as I'm cruising through the yard all day. And uh, every now and then one of those things sticks, and I'll think, there it is. There's the next column. There it is right there. Do you keep a list? Uh, I quick come in here and write it down okay. so I don't forget it. Or I put it in my phone under notes, which is something I've just recently learned, learned how to do <laughs> as, as a dinosaur. Uh-huh. Yeah. I love that. And well, and, and definitely uh, we've gotten a lot of great feedback. And I'm, I'm sure the people who get your newsletter must be, it must be something they look forward to every month. I mean, I get a lot of emails I delete fast. Uh, yours is one I look forward to. Well, that's, that's great. I'm really <laughs> glad. And as I say, I'm proud that, that you guys would include me um, with so many good writers out there. It would include me in your magazine because let's face it, I'm taking up space in there. So, well, I, I, I would argue. I'm, I'm proud that I'm worth idea. taking up a little space in there. Well, we'll, we'll carve out some <laughs> space for you going forward. Um, for sure. But no, thank you again. The kind of the, the last question that I like to ask, and this is a, kind of a tricky one because, well, you'll see in a second, but I wanted to ask how boating has changed your life. I mean, it's, it's kind of been your life in many ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up with it. So I don't think there was a, ever a big change. I was kind of born into this family that was consumed with it. But what, how does my life differ from somebody else's, maybe? One of the most important differences, I think, is that when I croak, <laughs> whenever that happens, I've left something here. Yeah. And I feel sorry for people 
who can't say that. I feel special in a way. Not that I'm better than anybody else. I don't mean that. I, I, I feel like I've been given that gift. Yeah. And I realize how special that is, that, that when I'm gone, things that I've done here will live on. And not everybody can say that. Um, and I, and I, it makes me uncomfortable when I think about uh, sometimes that, that I have that gift and there are a lot of people that don't. You know, and it's just, it's whether you want to believe it's a gift from the good Lord or it's fate or it's an accident, I don't know. But I feel like that that's something that makes my life different than other people. Um, I also get to, um, I have the gift of being able to create with other people's money. And that is an extreme luxury. Yeah. Some of the stuff so we do is very, very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the stuff I would say almost we do all of it, yeah. is very expensive. Yeah. It's rare that we do anything that's not expensive. Right, right. And that's a gift, too, because in the search for the perfect boat, which I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. it takes a lot of financing. Yeah. And our customers provide that. And I am so grateful to all of them who give us that opportunity. And that's a luxury as well that, that a lot of people don't have. It's amazing perspective and, and what a nice way to end it because it's, you seem to really appreciate that, you know, how many people get to strive to be the best in the world at what they do. I mean, it's, it, it's such a small, a small group of people. You think of, you know, the world's best baseball players, the world's best boat builders. I mean, what percentage can say, oh, you know, maybe we, we are, or we aren't, but we, we strive to be in the best in the world. That's that's a gift. That's a good analogy. And and, and in my case, or in the case of my fellow boat builders mm-hmm. that are out there with their own companies, what we have over the the sports hero thing, yeah, is that we can continue to do it as we get older. Um, most people, whether they're a movie star and they lose their looks or uh, a sports hero and they lose that youthful body. Right. That career that made them a household name is over when they're young. Right. Um, That's a really cool point. We're really, really lucky that we can continue on and and we just become this after a while. <laughs> and it's we can still do it. That's right. And we can still do it. That that's another luxury that we have. Yeah, a lifelong pursuit. That's, yes. that's such a that's such an interesting point. Yeah. Well, very cool, Michael. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for your time here this morning. We're looking forward to uh, getting to see some of your facility. It looks like a, looks like a beautiful day out there. See the palm fronds and the wind. Uh, what you see is why all the Yankees are moving here. I get it. Well, Michael, thank you so much for your time and. Uh, Again, thank you for, for being a, a valued PowerMotor.com columnist. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, Dan. Uh, it's a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Michael Rybovich, and they gave you a little bit of perspective as you read his monthly column in the magazine. If you enjoyed this story, I hope you'll support us with a subscription to PowerMotor.com at pmymag.com slash subscribe, that you'll leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for spending some time with us. Until next time, I'll see you on the water.